Some of you may know that a big project for me over the next six months is to write the manuscript for my book on self-doubt. This will be a mashup of my master's research, my coaching work and my own experiences and learnings over the last seven years or so. And even as I say this out loud, I can feel a little gut clutch of self-doubt, which probably stems from a childhood of being told that whenever I made a wish and blew out a birthday candle, I should never tell anyone or it won't come true, which is clearly superstitious nonsense. But man, that stuff has some power. Anyhow, as a lifelong reader, I have a massive reverence for books and I'm a little bit in awe of writers. I've always wanted to be published, to be honest. To hold my very own book in my hands feels like the nexus of a dream for me. And as this becomes more of an actual thing I'm trying to do, my self-doubt is rising up to meet me. So today's episode is for anyone who, like me, believes books are sacred and writers are wizards. We are meeting with a best-selling author who also happens to be a fabulous human being. So grab a cup of tea, this one is a goodie. Welcome to Courage and Spice, the podcast for humans with self-doubt. I'm your host, Sass Petherick. I'm so glad you're here. Rachel Lucas is a best-selling author who has just been nominated for a Carnegie Medal for her young adult novel, The State of Grace. She has also written three romantic comedies, Sealed with a Kiss, Coming Up Roses and Wildflower Bay, all published by Pan Macmillan. Rachel is a certified coach, mindfulness and meditation teacher, as well as being a Reiki master. She also happens to be a lovely person and we connected earlier in the year on Instagram with her photos of life by the seaside with her partner who's also a writer living in a rambling Victorian house full of books and kids and dogs, teapots and typewriters. Rachel had me at hello. And I also know that she has an incredible story of resilience and tenacity in the face of self-doubt. And I just wanted to talk to her about how she got from there to here. So, Rachel, welcome. Hi. How are you? Made you made me sound absolutely amazing. You are <laughs> absolutely amazing. Hey, I sound quite good, don't I? I heard Kate saying that on one of your previous podcasts. You know, you should come and introduce me to everything. And I'm thinking now, yeah, you could just come and be my introducer. That would work really well. Yeah, I'm a fluffer, right? Yes. <laughs> Do you know what? I actually, I have to say, when you said that previously, I laughed because... Um, you know, in that way that everybody always has a really weird job history. One of my job histories was actually working at an Arabian stud farm with horses. And the standing joke was I was a horse fluffer. I wasn't quite, but, you know, there you go. That is amazing. That is amazing. I love that. Um, we're already getting to know a whole different side to you. Oh, yes. So I'd love to open with my sort of standard question, really, which is, um, because I'm kind of fascinated about this, is what you learned about self-belief growing up? Well, I'm Scottish, and uh, as you can tell, and um, we're not very good at self-belief as a country. We don't tend to be, anyway. Um, And so I think you grow up in Scotland basically thinking that's not for the likes of us and I think you know if I had to characterize my childhood it was a feeling of people like us don't do things like that Mm. so I was a voracious reader from when I was really really young and I always knew that I wanted to be a writer but nobody ever actually said 
you could do this. And when you're surrounded by other people's self-doubt, and I'm talking, you know, family, teachers, everybody that you know, if there's nobody saying you can do this, you're amazing, give it a go. And these are these are words which I say to my children all the time, but these are words that I didn't hear when I was growing up. You don't have any self-belief. So um, I didn't have any self-belief when I was growing up. And I think that was probably enhanced by the fact that, you know, I didn't know at the time that I had Asperger's. So I was very conscious that the world seemed to be a really weird and confusing place, but other people seemed to be able to cope really well with it, which meant that as well as the self-doubt that I had, I also had this sense of why does everybody else seem to just be able to do stuff? And why does, why do they not find it difficult? Why can't, why do they not get confused understanding what people are trying to say or, uh, understanding motivations and you know their people's behavior and wow. so I think as a result of that I had that this like an extra layer of self-doubt and so I really flew below the radar um to the extent that when I was actually finishing school I got one of the highest marks in Scotland for my English exam and the teacher who was the head of year didn't even know you know, I actually went and asked if I could do, there was a further course you could do. And she said, what makes you think you can do it? And I said, well, I just got 90 something percent. And she said, oh, that's you. Because I was so invisible that, wow. you know, they didn't even know who I was. So that's, but, but, and I wouldn't perform to my best um, standard at school because I didn't want to stand out. But when it came to exams, English exams, I could write my heart out and that's what I used to do. So um, I sort of, I had this weird sense in underneath that one day I was going to be a writer, but I didn't know how. So, you know, it's it's so interesting that you describe the sense of underneath everything else, there's something there yeah. that wants to be born. So many people I talk to about their self doubt have that same sense. And I kind of believe that when we come into the world, that's exactly how we should be. That's our natural state, right? We've got these gifts and these talents yes. and these innate things that just light us up. And it's the rest of the world that kind of puts self-doubt on us or makes us yes. believe that self-belief is somehow wrong or arrogant. Absolutely. I think so. And I think um, I remember reading when I was a teenager about um the Australians talk about tall poppy syndrome and thinking yeah. that's exactly it's very much the same thing in Scotland, that sense of, you know, don't get getting above yourself, yeah. you know, so, you know, getting ideas above your station and, you know, saying I want to be a writer is, you know, that sort of thing that would be getting ideas above your station. It'll be ridiculous. We don't. I mean, honestly, I can't tell you how many times I heard variations of people like us just don't do things like that you know mm -hmm. television that happens in London books they happen in London we live in Scotland we live in a tiny little town you know that's that's just not that's not for us you know mm -hmm. that's for other people but there was this belief and I think it was actually fueled to a degree by the characters in the books that I read so I would read about Joe March and Anne Shirley and and they you know, came through adversity and became writers. And I think I used to read those books over and over and over. And, and you know, I spent all of my childhood, you know, in the library, borrowing books and reading them and reading and reading and, and reading Judy Bloom and thinking one day, you know, I'm going to be like one of these characters. I'm going to do something amazing. And I don't know how, though, but, you know, I'm going to do it. The thing is, though, when you're not given any fuel, if you're not given any sense of self-belief, then 
it's really difficult to kind of take that leap. And of course, the thing is, it's a generational thing because, you know, you're not, it's not a case of saying, well, you know, my parents should have encouraged me. They were never given any self-belief mm-hmm. either, you know? I'm so touched to hear you describe your childhood in that way because 12,000 miles away on the other side of the world, I was doing the same thing, oh. right? <laughs> and feeling that sense of I don't fit in here, but, yeah. I, but I also know that wanting something more is somehow dangerous. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Just the, the sense of stay in your box, don't push it. It's not a good idea to do, well, you know, you dangerous things. You didn't stay in your box. <laughs> so oh, it took well, I wonder, I I wonder like, <laughs> how did that happen? Like, can you tell us a bit about how you went from being that little girl told that self-belief is somehow wrong, or not even knowing what self-belief was, to becoming this best-selling Carnegie-nominated author? <laughs> well, I got married very young I was 23 when I got married and I did that because uh, even though I had a lot of doubts because I thought I genuinely thought if I get married I'll feel like a real person because I'll have a wedding ring and then I'll feel like a proper member of society right and um, that didn't work Um, I had four children um, because I knew I wanted to have a lot of children I had always had that in my head for some reason um and I was very unhappily married and I started writing um I started writing a blog um uh, because I decided I was going to run the marathon the London marathon in memory of my dad um who died of a heart attack he died 11 years ago and so I started writing this blog about running and I thought, you know, it was, you know, so it's quite a long time ago. Um, Twitter was really young. Um, social media was still, you know, quite small. But I was always blogging about running, training to run the marathon. Mm-hmm. And people started reading the blog posts where I was talking about, I would come home from running. And of course, the process of running was quite meditative and it would bring up lots of feelings. And so I would write down how I felt about losing my dad. And I would write down how I would feel about, you know, my memories of him. And people started to reply and say, um, you know, oh, you've made me cry. And I remember thinking, oh, my writing's made someone cry. Maybe I can do this. And I mean, bear in mind, I had spent 20 years saying I'm going to be a writer, but not actually doing it. Right. But believing in my head that I was going to be a writer. So then I did the marathon and I realised that I wanted to keep going with the blog. And so I sort of changed it into a lifestyle blog. And then I said, right, I'm going to do NaNoWriMo. Um, and so I did that in 2000 and nine or ten I can't remember and for people listening can you tell us a little bit about what that actually is it's national novel writing month so Mm -hmm. the idea is that in November you commit to writing 50,000 words towards a novel in the month of November and you get a little you sign up you get a little ticker and you can you so you, you type in your word count every day and I think it's 1600 words a day approximately that you have to do to reach 15 uh, to reach 50,000 mm-hmm. um, and so and interestingly I had again coming back to the self-belief thing I had never thought of myself as somebody who finished things I'd always thought of myself as th- someone who'd let things sort of drift away mm-hmm. um, the only thing that I had ever actually managed to make a decent fist of was um, being a parent because, of course, I had failed at so many jobs. I'd done so many jobs. I'd done a degree. I had, you know, 
tried working in a newspaper, I tried working with horses, I tried working as a nanny. All of these things failed, of course, I realise now, because people with Asperger's find it very difficult to cope in those sort of situations. And what they do is they try and cope and eventually they break down and then they walk away, which is what I kept doing. So I had in my head the absolutely solid belief that I was somebody who could never stick at anything. And that that was perpetuated. My, I mean, to be honest, my dad had always given me that impression. My ex had always given me that impression. And so I thought, I'm going to do NaNoWriMo. And I stuck to it. And I wrote the 50,000 words. And I kept on going. And then I finished the book. And that was the most amazing feeling at the beginning of the next year to have finished the book. Mm. And I realised while I was doing it and I was writing this lovely, very sweet and very funny romance that I was writing myself a happy ending. Mm-hmm. Um, it was about six months later, I think, I left the marriage. Um, and um, since then, I've you know got divorced and I've moved to the seaside and met my partner. Um, and so there's now, you know, I have um, four children and two stepchildren and we had a lovely life. Um, but I moved up here and uh, I didn't, I still had this book sitting in a drawer and I hadn't done anything with it. And I was turning 40 and I suddenly thought, if, uh, a girlfriend of mine said, who had self-published very successfully said, just bloody do it. And I said, I can't, I can't. And she said, just do it. What's the worst that can happen? And I said, I don't know. And I think that was the first time I'd actually thought, what is the worst that could happen? Yeah. Um, so I hired an editor. I hired a cover designer. Um, I, you know, paid a thousand pounds to, you know, have these things done. And I thought, I'm going to do this. And... I'm going to see what happens. And it was probably roller derby, starting roller derby, that actually gave me the courage to do this because, you know, once you've been on roller skates hurtling around at 100 miles an hour, being knocked over, it kind of gives you the courage to do anything. So I really am thankful to roller derby for that. Wait, so you started roller derby? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Oh, what's your role? Yeah. What's your name? Your your my, uh, I don't skate now, but my, my skating name was Scarlett Bronte. Oh, I love um, it. <laughs> I had to have a literary name, obviously. Obviously. Um, and so so I, I decided I would publish the book on Amazon. And um, I'd had some interest from an agent who really wanted to write a book of my blog more than wanted me to. And she said, no, I don't really like this. I don't think it would sell. And I thought, oh, do you know what? Sod it. So I went to Amsterdam and I arranged with the Amazon thing that it was going to pu- be published on Valentine's Day. And I thought, well, if it sells 100 copies, I'll be happy. If it sells 1,000 copies, I will be delirious mm-hmm. because that means I don't know 1,000 people. So that means, you know, definitely some people that I don't know will have bought it. Right. Um, and then I went away and, of course, I switched off the internet and... Um, turned on Twitter at one point on our in you know on our break in Amsterdam just to see what's happening and there was a message from a friend saying I hope you're screenshotting these chart positions and uh, I went and looked I thought oh well I don't know is 2000 good and uh, a best-selling author um, said yes that's really good you should be screenshotting this this is amazing and I went and looked at the sales figures and to cut a long very long story short 
within six weeks it sold 60,000 copies oh um, my word and just uh, and, and then it reached number seven in the Amazon charts overall and then um, I was absolutely yeah at this point I think everybody expects you to say and I was absolutely delighted what I was was absolutely horrified because that was visibility on a scale that I just wasn't prepared for mm-hmm. because then I opened my email and there were emails from countless really well-known agents wanting to represent me. So I didn't have the situation where I had to go looking for an agent. I, in fact, I had agents trying to, to you know, wanting to sign me. And I was terrified. Mm-hmm. And what I really, what I wanted to do was just hide under the table because I didn't have the tools to deal with any of it. So... Um, it's, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because I think a lot of us are kind of pretty scared of failure. We sort of think, oh, no one's going to buy it. Yeah. And actually, I know I am more afraid of success than failure. Because failure, I can pretty much handle. Yes. We know what we're doing with failure. And we expect it. And this is something I talk about in my writing coaching, Mm -hmm. is what are you going to do if you're, you're successful? Because... We don't think about it at all. We think about how it's going to feel when we get a one-star review. We don't think about what's going to happen when your book's at number seven in the Amazon charts. It's selling literally thousands of downloads an hour. And you are everywhere and you've got a newspaper saying we want to do a piece on you. And you're thinking, no, because I'm too worried about what people will think. I'm too, you know, my hair doesn't look okay. I need to lose you know, a stone, Um, I haven't got the right clothes, I don't look like an author, you know, all these things you're thinking, you know, what if somebody comes and says something terrible about me? And, you know, you start thinking about, have I done anything awful in my past that someone's going to come back and all of these things come up Mm -hmm. and you have to overcome them. And in fact, it took therapy. That was the point where I, I kind of went, I'm not handling this, I need to have therapy I need to work out what I'm doing so I kind of almost paused for a moment and I went away and spoke to a therapist got um, some help took a breath and then thought right okay I can deal with this now mm-hmm. signed with my absolutely amazing agent who is the one who actually called me and said I've read your book she didn't say you know I think your chart placing is amazing I'd like to sign you she said I've read your book I love your writing can we talk and we met and she has been an absolute delight ever since she's just you know she's like talked me down so many times and she's just such a brilliant help yeah and everything an agent should be and then we got the deal with Pam McMillan for the first three books and then I went on to write YA and here we are now so it's quite a long complicated story and lots of bumps along the way well and it it strikes me as well that it's just some some echoes back to that that you who who got the 90 percent score in your school exam and and felt that kind of exposure and then you get the 60,000 sales in, in a few weeks and that sense of exposure is um is back again yeah absolutely I think that's it and you know by the time that that the book had been signed with with Macmillan it had been it was over 100,000 and I remember somebody saying you've sold 100 you know I think I know it was 130,000 at the last count copies of your book and I remember saying I've tried to work out what that would look like how many people that's more people than live in my town that that's I can't get my head around it at all it just doesn't make sense um and 
And so everybody kept saying, oh, my goodness, you're living the dream. And I kept thinking, well, no, because it doesn't feel real. It doesn't feel like it's happening to me. It just feels like, you know, it's just words on a page. And even when I saw the book, they were just words on a page. And I didn't own it at all. And, you know, that was a really weird thing because Mm -hmm. everybody expected me to be really excited. And actually, I just felt kind of nothing you know and and has that changed Rach like since you've you had that initial like success that it sounds like you felt really unprepared for and as you've written more books like you're now this is your you've just published your fourth and you I know you're in the edits of your fifth um uh, how how do you feel now that that you've kind of got perhaps got used to or at least know what to expect from this this whole process I think it's interesting because I think that um, self-doubt, well, I've kind of come to the conclusion that self-doubt and, you know, is one of my travelling companions. But mm-hmm. I also, I, I now travel with courage and excitement and, you know, we're all in this for the ride long term together. So I still have the same self-doubt. So it's really interesting because you sort of think when X happens, I will be Y. And that's... I think that's one of the things that's drummed into us from childhood. When X happens, I will feel Y. But we don't live, you know, life isn't static like that. You don't reach a point. So what happens is when I have a book published, if my book is on the shelves, I'm going to feel, well, actually what happens is you think, gosh, I wonder what's going to happen with my next book. Am I going to be able to succeed? Is it going to do as well? If it doesn't do as well, how am I going to feel? Mm -hmm. Um, Am I going to feel a failure if it doesn't do as well? Um, And it's really interesting, actually, because that comes back to the the whole mindfulness thing is this sort of acceptance of, you know, things are where they are. And I think it took me a really long time to recognise that this is where I am. Um, What I have now is a faith in my ability to write. So I have managed to lose that sense of doubt. So I don't write something and think, I, I write and think, I know this is going to go somewhere. It might not end up being published, but it might be something that will be a stepping stone to another book, or it might just be something that gives me the inspiration to, you know, and needs to be changed. The book I'm writing at the moment, which is book six, um, I actually wrote half of last year and then walked away from because it wasn't right. And I said, I remember I blogged about it at the time and said, you know, it takes quite a lot of courage to walk away from a book halfway through it Mm -hmm. um, and actually say this isn't working to my editor I need to go away and think about this and it's taken a year of letting it just mull away you know at the back of my mind before I've come back and I realised what was wrong with it but so I think that my sense of self-belief with regards to my writing is actually quite strong Mm -hmm. now and I in fact, I, to be honest, I think my sense of self-belief is actually quite strong, full stop. Yeah. But I always, I'm doing things with the knowledge that what it is, is the voice. Is there. So, it, sorry, I'm realising this sounds bonkers. Um, I carry courage. So I know I'm scared, but I will do it anyway. I'm excited about what will happen. And yes, I am still full of self-doubt, but I will do it anyway. And I think that's that's 
where I am now. I, you know, that, just hearing you describe that, I think that's exactly where I feel like I am too. That sense that self-doubt is woven through everything I do. I'm always, yes. and I have these moments where it's really pronounced, but mostly it's kind of just sitting in the back seat. Yes. But it's the other travelling companions, the courage, the belief, the excitement yes. about your work, because you're doing something yes. you love. I so yeah. relate to that. Yeah. And I think that's exactly it. It's funny, actually, because my daughter is 17 and she's at the stage where she thinks everything thing she does is embarrassing and awkward. Mm -hmm. And I said to her yesterday, we went to a shop. I spilled a coffee down myself. I My bank card was refused because I used the wrong PIN number and, and I had the wrong account with the card with me. I, I got stuck going through a toll bridge um, and didn't have the right money and had, you know... And we had to reverse out of this toll bridge. Basically everything, you know, all the awkward things that you think, oh, my God, what would happen if? And I said to her, darling, I see my role in life as the person who shows you that all the really embarrassing shit, you can actually get through it because, you know what, it always happens to me. And she just <laughs> laughed. But I said, you know, the thing is, these are all things which previously, you know, in, in my life, I would have thought I will die if. Mm. If I'm at a toll bridge on a motorway and I don't have the right change and my car doesn't work, I will literally die. Actually, no, I won't. What I'll do is I'll reverse out, speak to the guy, fix it and go on. Mm -hmm. You know, I will die if I spill a coffee down myself in a cafe. No, you won't. You'll just go, oh, God. Um, and somebody will give you another coffee. I'll die if my bank card refused. No, you'll just say, oh, God, I'm really sorry. I've given you the wrong number. And actually, I haven't got the right card with me. Nothing happens you know there are very few things in life that are actually life or death you're so right it's and it's so funny it's, I although I have to say I really hope you use yesterday's misfortune <laughs> yes in a book because <laughs> I, I wonder if you kind of walk through life now going that's that's a good story oh, yes yeah yes there's yeah. A, a scene in my very first book actually where the girl goes um into quite an important meeting and she because it's set in the countryside, she's in a pair of welly boots and she pulls off the boots. And as she goes to shake off the boots, her yesterday's knickers fall out of the leg of her jeans. Um, and <laughs> just, <laughs> um, I'd like to say that wasn't based on reality, but I'd be lying. Love, um, it. Love it. You know, yeah. Most of, most of the things in my books are based on things that have happened to me or friends. It's so. Nora Ephron, isn't it, who said everything's coffee? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and I'm... I'm interested as well because as you're talking about this, the belief that you now have in your writing, State of Grace, your young adult novel, which has uh, been nominated for the Carnegie Award, is the story of an autistic girl making her way through the world. And yeah. it strikes me as such a, a different book from your previous novels, but also a, a really deeply personal story for you. And you could only have perhaps written that now. Yes, I think so. Her voice came into my head and I, I called my agent and I said, I'm just going to send you something. And I sent her a couple of passages and she just replied, yes. And the book itself I wrote in a matter of weeks. So I always say it was the fastest book I've ever written, but it took the longest amount of time to write because it goes right back to when Verity was born. So she's 17, nearly 18 now. As soon as she was born... I felt conscious that she wasn't the same as her peers, but I couldn't really put my finger on why. And I kept reading stuff about boys with Asperger's and the autistic spectrum and, you know, 
autism this and autism that and thinking, well, it's all about boys and she's a girl. So, you know, she can't be. And her nursery school pulled us up and said, you know, she's exhibiting some behaviours which make us wonder if perhaps she is autistic. Mm. My ex was very much opposed to this because he wanted her to be perfect, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. And I said, well, no, I'm really interested to know what makes you think that? And they said, well, she does this, this and this. And I said, yes, well, that ties in with, you know, my feelings about it. But we didn't pursue a diagnosis then. Um, But what I did do was... I started to treat her the way I would treat myself. So I recognised that in order to be able to cope with a day out to, you know, the Natural History Museum, she needed to know where she was going. She needed to know what it looked like, what we were going to do there, when we were going to leave. And that's all the stuff that actually makes me much happier. So I just treated her the way that that made sense to me. And then school kept raising the question. Eventually, it it took us 10 years to get a diagnosis. And... You know, it's it's a real struggle to get a diagnosis of autism for girls because it's so heavily weighted towards boys. The diagnosis process is weighted towards boys. And as we're going through this process, um, my um, lovely partner, Bertie's stepdad, said to me, um, when are you going to pursue a diagnosis yourself? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you're cut from the same cloth. And I said, no, don't be ridiculous. Um, I'm, oh, oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, And for some reason, it just hadn't occurred to me that, you know, all of the things I was doing for her, the fact that that, that somehow I was the same. And so I got a diagnosis and that was four years ago. And it's it's been really interesting, actually, kind of going back over my life and realizing, aha, that's why that was difficult. Ah, that's why I did this, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when it came to writing The State of Grace... I had this voice, it came very clearly into my head and I was aware that I wanted to write a book that was going to reflect how it actually felt. All the other books out there are either written by parents of autistic children who aren't autistic themselves or they're written about boys. And there was nothing out there for girls, nothing in the you know the mainstream publishing world. Mm-hmm. And it was the most horrific writing experience um, because I had to go right back to my teenage self and I wrote about some experiences that were based on things that happened to me and I did wrote about some experiences that were based on things that happened to Verity and it was so raw and mm. painful and hard to write that I felt you know I would finish each day feeling like I'd been beaten up and feeling physically sick mm-hmm. and tearful and and saying this is this is awful it's this isn't going to work and as soon as I'd written it, my agent just said, no, this is absolutely perfect. The world really needs this book. Mm-hmm. What happened then was the book was um, preempted by um, Macmillan Children's Books um, before the Bologna Book Fair. So it didn't actually get there. They bought it and bought world rights. And, and so now it's going to be published in America next year. And mm-hmm. it's just come out in France and there are other countries to come. And the reviews I've had have been absolutely amazing because they've, there are people who have adult women who have gone on to have an autism diagnosis after reading the book because they've said, oh, my God, this is me. Wow. And, they, and there are teenage girls who've written to me. I get emails all the time saying I've just read The State of Grace and I wanted to say thank you because I've taken this book to school and shown it to my teacher to explain why I find it difficult in the classroom. So it was such a painful book to write but it was so worth it, you know? Oh, my goodness. 
I feel so moved hearing that, Rachel. <laughs> yeah, it was it was really it's it's still and I feel so preciously you know I, it's difficult I don't have the words but what I know is it's so funny when Grace was I found out that Grace had been nominated for the Carnegie Medal my feeling was really this is for all the autistic girls out there you know it's just that's such a lovely feeling to feel like we're we're heard you mm. know um it, well and lovely. such a beautiful way to make some really quite delicious healing meaning from yes. your own experience exactly exactly so really, you're in the business of writing yourself happy endings in all ways. I really am. And I do. It's it's so funny, actually, because I tend to process everything through my books. So, you know, whatever I happen to be working through at the time tends to appear in my book mm-hmm. um, in one way or another. And, you know, my characters aren't based on me, but they will often, you know, work their way through things. I do use my books as therapy, actually. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of complicated way of doing it. We're all grateful. Your reading audience yeah. <laughs> is grateful. Yeah. Uh, so I'm wondering, like, how, like, how you navigate through your self doubt now. Well, I'd love to say that, you know, I manage it in a really lovely Zen, calm fashion. But I'm always really conscious of the fact that mindfulness is a practice, and it's so funny because inevitably, when something terrible happens, I come crashing into this awful situation and you know whether it's I can't do this book or like last year this is this book isn't working I I'm a failure this is terrible and I will have the explosion of self-doubt and Mm -hmm. angst and woe and you know crying into a chocolate cake but it doesn't last because you know what happens is I start the process of feeling really sorry for myself and thinking this is really terrible and and then you know the little voice inside my head goes is it just a feeling, you know? It's just a feeling that, you know, like happy is a feeling. And sometimes, I have to be honest, sometimes when the little calm voice in my head says that, I just think, oh, sod off. I want to be miserable, you know? And it's actually really difficult because it's like, I don't want to be so bloody reasonable. I'd like to be, I'd like to wallow for a bit. Isn't there something kind of delicious about wallowing? Yes. It's, I, it's I one of my favourite really like things to sad. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> because sad is such a lovely, cosy feeling, like a yeah. big, you know. And I mean, I say that as somebody who has lost a lot of very precious people. Yeah. Particularly in the last 10 years, I've had a, you know, a, a really awful series of losses. Mm. But sad is a lovely feeling. There is, a, there is a kind of comfort in it for me. Hugely comforting, like yeah. a really heavy, warm blanket. You know, I coach myself. Mm-hmm. So I'll say, what do you need to do now? Why don't we switch off the internet? Because um, I always say that self-doubt is a bit like bindweed. So it sort of spreads and it wraps itself around. And as soon as you start noticing it, you realise it's popping up everywhere. Yeah. And the internet, so social media is a really bad place to be if you're feeling bad about yourself or having doubts about, you know, anything I have to be honest sometimes I actually have to banish myself by using you know apps that I go on and sneaking on because I have no self-control and I take myself to the beach and I walk the dogs or I paint or I but I just try and do something that takes me away from the, the you know the, the cycle of thought the mm. cycle of oh god this is all terrible and I you know you're you're hopeless at this and actually one of the things that's really good for my creativity in fact I think for everybody's creativity is if you're 
if you feel like what you're doing really sucks and you're writing and it's really terrible, go and do something else. Make another thing. Do something that has a tangible end result so that you feel... Make a chocolate and, cake. Then you can cry yes, into it afterwards. I, yes, absolutely. And I do I do, do a lot of baking. I, I, yeah. you, I love that you procrastinate bake as well. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. Uh, I became really obsessed with baking bread when I was on deadline for one of my last books, actually. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like, how many words have you written? Um, I've done three loaves. I think basically the theme that runs through all of this is mindfulness. And I always say it's like a, it's like I have a little pilot light inside myself and it's there. And even when things are really tricky, I can kind of turn inwards and think this isn't actually important. Mm -hmm. You are okay. Just take a breath. And, you know, people have said before, they always think it's really funny how I can very quickly just close my eyes and, and be gone. I almost feel like my meditating self is actually my real self and the rest of me is just trundling about crashing Mm. into things and making mistakes you know oh I love that idea we were talking before I hit record about how we're both meditators and we're both really surprised by that because we don't feel like we are Um, totally not for me it's that state of sort of loving detachment Yes. I'm just kind of loving on the world, watching it go past, watching all my crazy thoughts, noticing how I'm feeling, noticing exactly. the sensations in my body. Exactly, and I think that's body. it. It's yeah. the sense of detachment is actually is really interesting. So everything can be going to shit. Yeah. And you just think, oh, that's interesting. And it sounds completely bonkers. I, and I was introduced to meditation by my amazing aunt, who is no longer here, sadly, but she was a... A hippie, she travelled from the UK to Marrakesh to go and see Jimi Hendrix, didn't make it back to the UK, settled in Spain, became a model and a fashion designer. So she was amazing. But she introduced me to meditation, to Louise Hay, to kind of alternative thinking about mm-hmm. sort of 20 odd years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, and so it's it's something that I have always done. And that's how I, you know, I, I had sort of done it for a really long time and then I realised I wanted to take it further which is why I ended up going and doing the meditation training with the British School of Meditation so mm-hmm. I qualified as a teacher because I thought it would be really helpful to be out there saying look, I don't look like your stereotypical meditation teacher and I still have days where I'm tearing my hair out and you know, you'll find me on Twitter going oh bloody hell, you'll never guess what's happened now yeah. but I think that's really important because I think that if people realise that actually, you know, you don't have to sit cross-legged under a tree saying on. Yeah. You can, you know, it can be five minutes breathing in the car before you pick up the kids on the school run. And that can be enough to change the whole shape of your day. Well, I think that's the thing that really shifted it for me was recognising that becoming a meditator wasn't about becoming a different person. It was actually yeah. about going more yeah. deeply into myself and just having a sense of calm. And I've heard Jerry Seinfeld, who practices uh, transcendental meditation, which is what, what I do, he said it's like um, recharging yourself like you would your iPhone. It is. It's exactly like plugging yourself That's how it back feels. in. Yeah. I meditate before I write, actually, even mm-hmm. just to kind of try and clear my head just give me you know give myself a chance to let whatever wants to come through come through um if that doesn't sound that does sound really hippie i i say that i am a massive hippie so you know i i there's not much point in saying that i'm I'm sitting here in my tie-dyed leggings going yeah 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 (laughs) so tell us about what you're working on now that's got you really excited i'm finishing off a book and then in january i am 
doing a course called Create Courage, which is really encompassing everything we've talked about, actually. It's about um, creativity, self-doubt, fear, how to actually get going on writing the book you've always dreamt about writing. I have said it's not just focused on people who want to write. It's also for people who who've said they want to write a blog or who want to improve their creative writing. It's not, I'm not going to be teaching writing per se, but it's about mindfulness and about kind of finding the tools to cope with the creative life. Mm. And it's a six week course. Each week I'm going to be doing a guided meditation and we're going to be doing some one-on-one stuff talking about creativity and, you know, really seeing where it goes. And so um, the sign up for that is actually on my website. Sounds delicious. I'll, I'll make sure I put all the links in the show notes so everyone can get on that. Oh my God, what a fantastic <laughs> conversation. I'm so glad we got to we got to chat. Yes, me too. It's been brilliant. As always, you'll find the show notes for this episode at courageandspice.com and you can subscribe, rate and review Courage and Spice, the podcast for humans with self-doubt, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time.